0: Check, 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 <laughs> Right. Good morning, good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. I hope you're enjoying our beautiful sunshine in Colorado. Just don't tell anybody, okay, especially out-of-staters. No, we love, we love people that come. I'm um, uh, grateful to have you here this morning. My name is Aaron. I'm uh, the pastor here at New City Church. We're going to have our time in God's Word here today in a moment. Uh, but want to welcome you first and also say, if you are new to the church, we'd love to get to know you a little bit. You can fill out a Connect card, which uh, you can find on our little kiosk stands. Or if you want to uh, go online, you can fill out that Connect card and answer or ask any questions that you have. We'll answer those about the church. If you have prayer requests, we can also be praying for you as well. Um, I think I'm getting just... Sound through the monitors. Is it coming through the speakers? Can everyone hear me? Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so just a couple quick announcements. The chili cook off is next week. We also combine that with the reformation party. Um, so if you would like to be a part of that, we need to know that you're coming. And uh, that's October 29th. Next Sunday, right after church, we'll have our chili cook off and a reformation party, especially for the kiddos. They'll have some candy. Uh, so if you can bring some candy, bring double. That way I can have half uh, as part of my tithe for for preaching today or next week. And then the kids can have the other half. So, uh, no, we're going to have a great time together. That's one of our kind of annual fun things that we do. We also do some uh, different things, and I'll be announcing those as they get closer around the holiday time. Uh, But I just want to mention to you that Advent season is coming, and we want to celebrate that. But we also want to use that as a time to do some outreach and evangelism and uh, just an invitation for people to come and hear about their risen Lord Jesus, uh, our our Christ. So um, a great time for that is coming. Uh, So be be aware of what's going to happen when we start our Advent service and Advent time here in the near near future. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And today is a a little bit of an interesting passage in terms of the reading. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13 to 28. Uh, There is a verse, verse 14, that is in the authorized or King James Version. I will also be reading that verse today. It is not in your English Standard Version or many of the modern translations. And as we get close to that verse in our time together, I'll explain why that is. But these are the words of God. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13 to 28. But what to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Verse 14. Down in my notes, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour a widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have not neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup Let us pray. Father God, we're grateful to be in your house on the Lord's day, to serve you, to worship you, to sing to you, to center everything we do on you. Most of our weeks entail us centering life on ourselves. We can become selfish. We can become uh, navel-gazing. We can become overly thoughtful about things that we need to put away, sins that we are managing we need to kill. Many times, God, we're thinking of ourselves when we should always be thinking of you. And as we come here today, may this time that we have in this service be focused on you and your word. Your word is truth, and we love it. We want to read it and know it and understand it, but we want it to also point us back to who you are and what you've done for us. For those of us here who are struggling with different issues, whether they be relationships, finances troubles with work, we ask God that you would guide and direct us, that we would obey you no matter what, that we would love you no matter what, that we would trust you no matter what, that your providence for each individual in this place would be loved by that person, that we would focus everything we have on serving and worshiping you because that is the purpose of our life, to worship you and to find joy in you. God, I pray for all the great things that are going on in the midst of our church. There are people who are, for the first time, understanding your word and understanding what the gospel truly is, the gospel of the kingdom. There are people whose relationships are being saved and grown and nurtured. There are people who, for the first time, their children are wanting to come to church. They're wanting to serve their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All these things are wonderful things, and we praise you for them. May every person in here know you as Lord and Savior, and may you bless them for a thousand generations. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. If you're new to our church, we typically go through books of the Bible. We're in a long series in the book of Matthew because it is a long book. Um, Right now, Jesus is in the temple. He's just got done uh, getting out of the trap that the Pharisees had tried to set for him. And he is lecturing them because he is God on their waywardness. One of the reasons why the Pharisees were wayward is they come from a long line of people who had persecuted the prophets and even killed them from time to time and neglected what the prophets of God had to say in the Old Testament And Jeremiah was one of these Old Testament prophets. It said that he was a weeping prophet, that the book of Lamentations is about the lamentations or the lament of Jeremiah. He said that not only was he the weeping prophet, but he was a prophet that had only one disciple. And he was called to prophesy to Israel for their repentance or judgment. Repent or you will be judged. Um, It said that, you know, he complained a little bit when God first called him to be the prophet. It said that, you know, he said, I can't talk. I'm not a good uh, rhetorician. I don't know what to say. He kind of complained a little bit about uh, the, the call that God had on him to go prophesy to Israel. But in the end, he was obedient. And it says he was bold and courageous. And he went where he was told to go. He prophesied because the religious leaders of that time were greedy. They were worshipers of Baal. They went through the motions of trying to worship God, but they really were participating in the worship of Baal. Kind of like the secret societies that you see today that claim an allegiance to Christ, but they worship Satan or his minions or any kind of demon that you could, uh, every kind of demon you could possibly imagine. That was what was going on with the religious leaders in Jeremiah's day. Now, Jesus, I mentioned Jeremiah because Jesus fulfilled many prophecies from Jeremiah. All of the prophecies about the Messiah from Jeremiah were fulfilled by Christ. And he was one commentator, um, or there was one commentator that called this the in, in other instead of Jihad, it was Jeremiad, to the Pharisees and the Jews. That Jesus came as the last prophet to tell the Jewish people, the Israelites, especially the religious leaders, They needed to repent and believe. Now, I say this because the general aspect of what you can get from Matthew in terms of the Pharisees is this they rejected their Messiah. They clothed that rejection in Christianity, but they rejected their Messiah. They wanted a religion for their own. They wanted Christ to come on their terms, and they rejected him. And that is the lesson for all of us. If you reject Christ, you will spend an eternity, uh, an eternity separated from him. There is no other option. You receive Christ, you repent and believe in Jesus Christ or you will spend an eternity separated from him. And Jesus comes to the religious leaders throughout the book of Matthew. He's telling people, I'm here. This is your chance. This is the shot that you have, the one last shot you have to repent and believe in your Messiah. We're gonna see this boldly in the text today. Remember, Jesus speaks throughout this uh, book about the kingdom, about the kingdom. He doesn't speak exclusively about your personal salvation it's one of the things that I'd love to get correct in the American church in the western church is that Jesus spoke about the kingdom now your personal salvation allows you entrance into the kingdom you are now a citizen of the kingdom if Jesus has saved you but he speaks about the kingdom not just your personal salvation and the kingdom involves two things his kingdom and he is the king He's the, he has kingship over his own kingdom. He talks about the entrance into the kingdom and how that happens. He talks about the necessity of his kingdom. And he says that the kingdom has come now. You're at a church, and many churches, I believe, are waking up to this because we believe that Jesus actually wins down here, that he's winning down here, and that he will always win down here. It may not look like that to your eyes, but in God's eyes, in His providence, everything is going according to His perfect plan. He wins down here. He will always win down here. He wins forever. And He claimed that He would win when He came to the earth and started preaching to the Israelites, preaching to the people that are around Him, that the necessity of His kingdom, that the kingdom had come now. Now, He's before the people and the leaders and he's in the temple at this time and he's speaking to them and he's saying that he is the fulfillment of the king bringing his kingdom to earth and his kingdom comes to earth through the blood sacrifice and the cross and the resurrection that he uh, performs from the grave, that Jesus is raised from the grave. It's the establishment of this new kingdom to earth. Now, people would say that, you know, different, there's different views on a lot of things regarding Jesus. But Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is a Jewish person. That's a well-established fact. Um, I believe that. You should believe that. If you don't believe that, you just don't read history very well. But he is a Jewish person. He was born a Jewish person. That's a well-established fact. And because of that, get ready, Jesus loves the law. Not the law of the Pharisees, the made up stuff that they had he loves the law of god the law as represented in the pentateuch the first five books of the bible jesus loves the law he says i didn't come to abolish the law i came to fulfill it now some would tell you that he abolished it by fulfilling it like that's where i go crazy my mind starts a short circuit i'm a country boy Simple thinking, simple logic, common sense. Kind of like that Canadian prime minister candidate. Did you see him with the apple this week? That was awesome. I have that as my profile pic on my uh, social media account. Um, That was just fantastic. Common sense would say that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law by fulfilling it, as many people in Christian circles would say today. And this is the extrapolation of that. They believe that no sin is sin anymore because Jesus came to not only fulfill the law, but abolish the law by fulfilling it. It's a weird thing. I don't get it. I can't even explain it. I don't even know if I said it right. Um, The proper response to the law of God is not to abrogate it, not to push it to a side, but to understand that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So the proper response to God is to love the law, but more importantly, love the lawmaker who sent his son to die on the cross so that we could, not to get more from God, but uh, out of love for God, we could obey what he's told us to do. Now, because he loves the law, Jesus knew that the appointed leaders, which are the Pharisees and others, had a job to do. They had a job to do. The the reality was that they had a great outward practice of that, but the inward reality was not great. Jesus, the appointed leaders, had this job to do, and their outward practices were to reflect the inward reality. In worship to God, and out of a result of a heart that was not a stone anymore, but flesh, as it talks about in Ezekiel, their outward practices were to reflect inward realities. And Jesus respected that. He respected the call of these people that they were to serve God in that capacity. And he respected that they were commanded to do things. And last week we saw this. So do, he's talking to the people, so do and observe what the Pharisees tell you, but don't do it like they do it. You need to do and observe what they tell you. They're the appointed leaders and where they are uh, in line with God's law and what he meant uh, by it and what his intention was for it. Do and observe those things, but don't do what they do, which is works apart from the law. Don't do the works they do. This is the point. The inward reality is what is important. Many times when I'm thinking even of my own self of, you know, why did I do that? What what was the the thing going on? And, you know, you always have an excuse and and a justification. I did that because... Not that this ever happens, but I ran that red light because the way they design traffic in this city is crazy. I'm perfectly justified. And if we were libertarians with, you know, that mindset, like if you go to some Asian countries or even South American countries, there's no lights, you just kind of function, just kind of get in the groove. That would be my kind of country, man, because I'm a professional driver. Okay. I digress. I digress. That's not the problem with me running the red light. The the running of the red light is a heart issue. I have an issue in the heart. It could be pride. It could be ego. It could be vanity. It could be all the things that the heart is kind of an idle factory, as John Calvin said. But my heart wants to do the wrong things, and I need to get to the inward reality and understand what's going on in there to see the outward manifestation of a heart changed by God. The sign of a changed people leads to obedience to the dot and tittles of the law for the right purposes, glorification and worship of God. Now, the Pharisees and scribes had butchered it. Why? Because their hearts were hearts of stone and they were far from God. Now, this is what's interesting about the Pharisees. They looked dialed in. They were the Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, CEOs of their time. They were disciplined, like, there was nobody more disciplined than a Pharisee. They were intelligent. They were, in, in a false way or in a bad way, they were courageous. They followed through with what they believed in. Now, the story of Israel, as well as the Pharisees, is that a human heart left to its own prideful devices will pervert the love and law of God to the point where some some can, as it says in this passage, become twice the child of hell as yourselves. I have to be careful uh, when I say this, because I think this particular passage and the passages surrounding this can be really applied to churches who have a theological uh, ambition and drive, They want to know precise theology. They want to make sure that it's dialed in and correct. That is a good thing, by the way. That's probably something sorely lacking in the church is to have a a theology that's rooted in Scripture, and I know these things. But that theology should lead to the love of God. It should lead to a greater obedience of God, a heart that is a, a fleshly heart when confronted with the love and law of God, wants to understand for sure correct theology and good theology, but it doesn't make that its God. Now see, when we go and make proselytes, or the Pharisees, when they made proselytes, of their perversion of the love and law of God, it created children that were twice the child of hell as yourselves. Now, this is the way I would... um, Categorize this. The Pharisees had created a man-centered religion. Every man-centered religion is worse than robust atheism. I would prefer that people are atheist rather than a religious order or a religious belief that is centered on them or a man or man-centered thinking, secularism. It's filled with lies, deceit, corruption, and soul-crushing or even soul-damning hypocrisy. Now, this is where we're going to start today in this passage, because this passage is kind of a a flip side of a coin of Matthew chapter 5, which is the Beatitudes. I'm going to read for you from Matthew chapter 5 what the kingdom looks like. People who enter the kingdom are blessed... Jesus has saved them, that's the main blessing, but they're also blessed in this manner. Verse 2 of Matthew 5, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Real quick, poor in spirit means you realize there is a God and you're not him. That's what poor in spirit means. It's not prideful that I'm 51% good, therefore I will achieve heaven, That's not poor in spirit. Poor in spirit isn't like a a, a weak kind of mangled person in their soul that just walks around pouting all the time. That's pouting in spirit. That's different. Poor in spirit. I realize there's a God and I, this is how Paul put it, and I've said this many times, I'm a sinner later in his life. I'm a pretty bad sinner. At the end of his life, I'm the chief of sinners. That's a good representation of poor in spirit. It's a person who, Um, really loves to look at the log in their own eye before they deal with the speck in others. Okay, blessed are they. They'll receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn over what? Yes, uh, there's a sense of mourning over some tragedy in life. Mourn over their sin. That was the original intention of this particular beatitude. You realize your sin, and you mourn about it. You realize how you've wronged God, and you mourn about it. You'll be comforted. Man, oh man. Some of the worst sinners are some of the most joyful people I know, especially if they mourn for their sin. Like, you hear stories, you wouldn't believe who I was before I came to know the Lord. I was an axe-murdering, you know, whack job, taking over countries, and Jesus saved me. And I mourned over my sin. And now the joy. Paul was that guy, right? Paul was a murdering, uh, anti-Christian. Like he, he loved it. He was bloodthirsty. We'll talk about that here in the later part of this, this section we're in. Blessed are those who mourn for their sin. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness isn't, again, kind of doormat. Meekness is controlled strength. I know when I'm supposed to be strong and I know when I'm supposed to be weak. That is meekness. It's an understanding that I'm confident in my faith and trust in Christ, but I also understand that I need to be meek in this particular situation. They'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied I got to be honest, man, I, I, w- when I left high school, my whole intention, I was a believer, my whole intention was to become a doctor because I saw him playing golf a lot. And they drove nice cars. That was it, man. I wanted money and golf. Now I hate golf. <laughs> talk to my son about golf, if you want to talk about golf. But not, I hungered and thirsted for it. But you know what? When God... Grabbed my heart and began to sanctify this out of me and gave me a hunger and thirst for his righteousness. I'm satisfied. I don't white knuckle stuff as much anymore, materialistically for sure. And I'm not against material blessings. I think God gives those to people who are obedient to him in his providence and in his understanding and in his way. It's not a promise uh, in terms of a prescription, but it is a description of a person being blessed by Christ. They'll get material stuff. But what you should hunger and thirst for is righteousness. If you do that, you'll be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, They'll show, uh, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, They shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus' account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know sitting there listening to that? The Pharisees. They, I'm sure, were not only uh, uh, intimidated by this, they were convicted. I think this might have been one of the starts of their desire to see him killed. See, the kingdom, which is paid for by Christ's blood and built by Christ's resurrection power, is a place of blessing. It's a place of blessing. Do you, and I hate to use this word, as you all know, do you feel blessed? Maybe a better way to put it is the Spirit of God giving you a sense of blessing. If you're part of the kingdom, the resurrection power of Christ is a place of blessing as described in the Beatitudes and the description here in Matthew chapter 5. This is the intended pers- uh, purpose of God. Even in the Old Testament, he wants to bless. But those with power that were following their corrupt hearts made the kingdom appear to be something entirely different. It's like that most recent crypto guy, the guy with the big hair. I don't remember his name. What was his name? Freed? Is that his name? Okay. Um, Ponzi scheme. The Pharisees had a kingdom, small k, Ponzi scheme going on. In this uh, crypto guy's most recent Ponzi scheme, you get money from others to pay returns to the original investors and you make it look like this incredible investment. In the underlying reality, it's fake, it's phony, but it is the best we can do on our own. If you and I were to come up with a kingdom preaching, teaching, you know, whatever, it would be us doing it on our own power and it would be fake and phony just like the Pharisees. Now, this is what's important. Some are really good at it, like the Pharisees. Some of the Ponzi scheme guys in religious circles, even maybe in the evangelical church, they're like the Pharisees. They're very good at presenting a Ponzi scheme. Jesus sniffs it out. Jesus understands it. And he says to the Pharisees, and by the way, man, we're getting close to the end here. He's going to be hanging on a cross pretty soon. And he's in their face, and he's challenging them, and he says to them, woe to you hypocrites. We're going to go through a majority of the woes here this morning, and then we'll pick it up next week and finish. But here's the first one. Woe to you because you have the knowledge, but you twist, contort, and spin it. Luke eleven fifty two 52 kind of mentions that. And in so doing, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They knew the kingdom. They knew how to enter the kingdom because they knew the word of God. They knew that entrance into the kingdom, even in the Old Testament, was through repentance and belief. And the purpose to get into the kingdom was to love God and to love others. But they complicated it. They complicated it so badly and spun it so badly that they can't even enter the kingdom themselves. Really what it's saying is they can't be truly repentant and believing. They have a worldly sorrow, but not a godly sorrow. A sorrow that comes from a, "I got caught, I better say I'm sorry, versus a godly sorrow Like the guy on the corner, instead of praying out loud and with all the fanfare, there's the guy in the other corner that's repenting in dust and ashes and crying out to God for mercy. They weren't obedient. And if they would have obedient, they would understand that the law, all of it, encapsulated these two things, love God and love others. They complicated it by being greedy. They used the post uh, uh, for their own gain, their, their their Pharisee post, their station in life. They used it for their own gain. They wanted power and money and prestige. They wanted their kingdom by using God's kingdom. Now, some wanted in. People were walking around saying, hey, all this God stuff, I come from a long line of Jewish people. I'm a Jewish person myself. I want in the kingdom. Some wanted in, but they were prevented because it was so complicated which, by the way, is true legalism. The Pharisees told these people, "You got to follow these six hundred laws, and if you don't, you can't get into the kingdom." It was an overcomplicated, uh, truly perverted system of trying to get into the kingdom. And some people were like, "I can't do that. I know who I am. I know my heart. It's a sinful heart. There's no way that I can do what you tell me to do, and and obey all those things. I I can't get into the kingdom." Luke 7 says that they rejected the purpose of God for themselves and they certainly, because of that, didn't want others to go into the kingdom. Now, verse 14 is not in the ESV. It is in the King James Version or what's otherwise referred to as the Authorized Version. I read it earlier. It was basically talking about devouring widows' houses while making long prayers. You see, what the Pharisees would do is they proclaimed to the widows that you need to give um, your money to the church or to the temple, and we'll help you. And what what they really were doing was lining their pockets. They were literally devouring widows' houses. A widow in this particular age was not like maybe a widow today that had a life insurance policy. Uh, By the way, men, get your life insurance policy paid up. Um, They didn't have the, the kind of safety net Once your husband was dead, you're on your own. And these poor widows would come to the temple to the Pharisees and say, hey, uh, I'm kind of on my own here. It says in the book, even in the law, that you're to protect the widows and the orphans and to watch over them. And the Pharisees say, you're right, but you need to give, and you need to give it all. And they would take advantage of these poor widows and devour their houses. And all the while doing it, they would stand on that corner in the temple, or stand on that street, or the stair, wherever they were, and they would make these long, elaborate prayers, drawing attention to themselves. Now, verse 14, by the way, is not in the ESV, or many modern translations, because they say that the uh, best manuscripts, the most uh, oldest manuscripts, do not have that particular verse in the manuscript evidence that they have, um, I tend to think that it falls well in line with what the, the scriptures say in this, so that's why I included it today, but you devour widows' houses while making long prayers. That's a woe. You have knowledge you can twist, uh, twist and contort it and spin it, and because of that, you shut people out of the kingdom, and woe to you. Cursed are you for that. Next woe. Woe to you because your proselytes are twice the child of hell you are. Parents, this isn't like an apples for apples Canadian prime minister analogy, okay? But this is an analogy that you need to listen to. If you're not raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and you're raising them in the nurture and admonition of Oprah, the nurture and admonition of Dr. Spock, The nurture and admonition of whatever parent, you know, social media influencer is out there. Woe to you because you could be making twice the child of hell that you are. Now, Jesus is talking about these proselytes, the people that the Pharisees uh, went out to evangelize. You know that the Pharisees were like really good missionaries. Like historically, they were zealous about getting the word out about their Pharisaical understanding of Judaism. They worked hard at evangelism, and they would go to people, and apparently many of the people they talked to loved the message. I'm sure they were kind of the type A personalities with the spreadsheet for everything, and these particular people became twice as zealous to preach the false gospel, which was no gospel at all. You convert people to what you win them to, is the principle here. And if you win them to legalism, trying to earn God's favor through your righteousness, even though your righteousness is filthy rags, you convert people what you win them to. They will become twice the child of hell that you are. Now that comes into play a little bit later, but this is the irony. Many Jewish proselytes turned to Christ later in the, the uh, first century, And then they try to Judaize the message of the gospel. And what does Paul do? What does even Peter eventually do? They criticize or or, uh, they say, no, we're not going to Judaize the message of the gospel because Judaizing the gospel is false religion. And again, false religion is usually more powerful than a robust atheism. People love it. They love their false religions. They feel in control of it. And the Pharisees, as they converted people to their pharisaical understanding of the Old Testament, they made, uh, they made proselytes who were twice the child of hell they were, that were involved in this false religion. It, it permeated even the New Testament church, and they had to deal with that. Woe to them. Third woe, well, woe, because you are blind, and you are leading the blind into further blindness. The picture of this is you're stumbling in the dark and you're never getting to the place of understanding of truth, of the gospel, of the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, Doug Wilson says this, there's a sandwich right in front of you and you refuse to take a bite out of it. Like I would never do that, as you can tell. I love my sandwiches. You're stumbling in the dark. You're never getting to a place of light. You're never leading people to truth. And this is how it's represented. You make false oaths or oaths with loopholes. Oh, baby, here we go. This is, I think, the Western church in a nutshell. We love our loopholes. We make oaths to God, but we have some loopholes in it. And it causes further confusion and corruption and deception and really the Pharisees did that in terms of this temple stuff and the gold and all that it mentions in that section. They did it so that they could get out of their oaths. They had a subset rule to the parliamentary procedure on the constitutional advances of the bylaws of the, of the uh, overall understanding of the exact minutiae of God. They found a loophole. It was minutia that further blinded them and the people. You see, What Jesus is saying is here is, if you make an oath in the temple, whether it be an oath with gold involved or the altar, all this stuff, all these little nuances and minutia that you have, the temple is the house of the living God. You cannot loophole the God of the universe. You can loophole in our legal system, You can loophole in all sorts of different ways at work. You can loophole even with your family and in relationships, but you can't loophole the God of the universe. You make oaths by him and his possessions. That means that oath is gold. It's sacred because it's about God, not our pernicious loopholes that we make with him. Woe to you for finding those loopholes. Woe for you to finding a way to get out of the oaths that you make to God. Next, woe. Woe because you make sure to tithe on your garden seeds while there is a camel in the house. You've heard of the elephant in the room? This is a camel in the house. These houses were small. Okay? This, the camel would be pretty obvious. Uh, this is a little bit of a reference to like when uh, people would drink wine, they would strain the wine through like a cloth to get the gnats out of it. I'm all for that. Anybody had natty wine? Okay, Not great. But as they're doing that, there's actually a camel swimming in the vat of wine. Woe to you because you tithe on your garden seeds, but there's a camel in your house. The camel in this instance is your greed and your lack of living in the weightier matters of the law. There's a lot of people, I call them the SFBs. You know what that stands for? The slick, fine, and beautifuls. A lot of people in churches, slick, fine, and beautiful, man. Uh, I'm just trying to wear a tie just to keep up. But man, they got everything dialed in. They, They say the right things. They believe the right theology. They do the right, you know, particular things so that, of course, people can see. But they lack... In the weightier matters of the law, Jesus says there are three of them, justice and mercy and faithfulness. I've been on this trip, not drug-induced, okay? but I've been on this trip for the last several years of understanding how the lack of justice and mercy and faithfulness pervades even the Christian church. Let me put it another way. Unequal weights and measures. Do you know what God calls that? An abomination. Like our lack of justice and mercy and faithfulness is equivalent of an unequal weight and measure. It's tilting the scales of justice through corrupt and evil means. It's an abomination. Woe to them because they tithe on their garden seed And there's a camel in the house. Some can be trusted in the little things, and they like that, so they can get away with cheating and deception in the bigger things. Faithfulness in the small things is supposed to help with faithfulness in the bigger things, but many times it doesn't. And that's why Jesus calls it hypocrisy. Great, if you're doing the little things well, you should also be advancing in your sanctification of the bigger things, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. God takes justice and mercy seriously. I'll talk more on that in a moment. He says, you ought to have done this. He says, you ought to have tithed on your garden seed. Uh-oh. All the anti-tithers love that particular verse. I see Jesus condemning tithing. no. He's affirming the tithing of the garden seed. He says, "The tenth of the garden seed? That's about right, because I made you, I gave you all that you've got, and as a tribute to me, I want a tenth of your garden seed. But I also want, in conjunction with that, for you to deal with the camel in your house. You should tithe because it's your tribute to God but the tithe that you give is needed for justice, mercy, and faithfulness which you avoid and try to get around. Woe to you. Next woe. Woe because you're a poser. That's my paraphrase. You're a poser. I love this one. How am I doing on time? Oh, I got another hour. You're a poser. You wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty. I can't stand that. Sometimes when I've had not the best dishwasher, I've put the coffee cup in or the milk cup in. My wife loves this one. The milk cup in, and it doesn't get out that crusty, creamy circle at the bottom of the cup. And then you put some, ugh, this grosses me out. The outside of the cup got really clean, man. That washer did the thing. But the inside of the cup has crud in it. Ooh. Little extra, you know, protein, I guess, for your drink. <laughs> Woe to you when you wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty. Can I tell you that this is probably a great summary verse for everything that Jesus says to the Pharisees? Here you go. Your heart isn't changed. Your heart isn't changed. There is no fruit. The right things are said. There is maybe a little obedience might appear to be there. The only reason that there's a little obedience there is to manipulate others into thinking you're better than you are. But the heart isn't changed. Folks, throughout the Testaments, old and new, throughout Scripture, there is one clear thing that you always can count on. The outside-in approach does not work. The outside in approach does not work. If you'll clean the inside, and you can only do that through repentance and belief in the regenerative power of God working you, the Holy Spirit saving you. If you clean the inside, the outside will follow. The outside is the easy stuff, but it is not long lasting. Cleaning the outside of the cup is easy, but it's not long lasting. It's the heart. It's the heart. It's the heart. Woe to you when you pose. Woe to you when you clean the outside, but the inside is dirty. This next one's even better. Woe to you because you are bloodthirsty and you make it look so proper. That's what whitewashed tombs are talking about. Tombs in those days, um, it's tombs with bodies. There'd be bodies all around and they'd be in these tombs and they would actually whitewash them so you would stay away from them because if you touched a tomb or if you touched a dead person, you were considered unclean. So that's what Jesus is referencing. Woe to you because you're whitewashed tombs. This is where the Pharisees and scribes hide the bodies. What bodies? The bodies of the prophets. Soon to be the body of Jesus. This is where people who have no heart change, you might have some outward posing going on, shows where they're bloodthirsty. It's where the Pharisees and scribes hide their bodies, the prophets, John the Baptist, the prophets down through the Old Testament. The dirty truth is that people in man centered religion, even though it sounds kind of Christian y, it sounds kind of gaudy. Um, G-O-D-D-Y it sounds like God is in there it sounds a little like the kingdom the dirty truth is they want to kill anyone who would call them to repentance and belief in the true king and his kingdom the prophets are buried there and soon Jesus the final prophet and more importantly the Messiah will be buried there but it's Friday and Sunday's coming right? right? Jesus will rise again. Now this is the story of Old Testament Israel and the story of many today. I can't quiet my conscience. I can't make up enough loopholes. I can't make the outside of my life look good enough. I'm trying to, try, uh, to, to tie rotten fruit to a tree that is dead. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to kill Jesus. I'm going to kill the one who wants to save me. How will I kill him? I'll reject him. I'll reject him until I die and I'll spend eternity separated from Christ in a literal place called hell because I don't want to repent. Now, you could go that way, or you can repent. And in Romans chapter 12, it says repentance is the logical thing to do, your spiritual act of worship. You want to be cursed? Or do you want to be blessed? Which will you have? Will you have the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the whitewashed tombs filled with the bodies of people who have rejected Christ? They can't quiet their conscience. They can't quiet, uh, make up enough loopholes. They can't make their outside of their cup look good enough. They tie rotten fruit to the tree, and so they're going to kill Jesus and reject him until they die. Which will you have? Jesus' kingdom or the kingdom of those whitewashed tombs. There's some practical applications to this text. Number one, obedience is good. Obedience is good. Now, if your obedience comes from a spreadsheet that you think is going to get you more favor with Christ, then that is a bad spreadsheet and a bad thing to follow. If your obedience comes from a humility that Jesus saved me, a humility that I have logs in my eye and I'm trying to deal with specks in others. Obedience is good. Jesus, in this passage, strongly supports tithing. A right heart leads to right fruit and works. Tithing out of obligation might be uh, something that you have to do for a while, but tithing, as an example of obedience, is a thing that you do because Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus rose from the grave. He walked out of the whitewashed tomb. He saved you. He is sanctifying you. Obedience in the small and the weightier matters of the law is a good thing. Hypocrisy is not a good thing. Now the worst kind of hypocrisy is believing that your way will save you. It is self-deception. And you hear, I'm going to, I think, trademark this quote someday and make a lot of money. Self-deception is deceiving. <laughs> it looks good. It feels good. It's not good. Kind of reminds me of the uh, army song that they would sing. I look good, look good, feel good, feel good. Not good. It's not good. Deceiving yourself into believing that your way will save you is not good. It's the height of hypocrisy. It's playing with pretense and outward adornments. Hypocrisy is sometimes made large by being the guy with all the answers and seeing the specks instead of dealing with the logs. The Pharisees constructed a false system where they were always winning. It was a rigged game, but it was a complete aberration of what God intended in his kingdom. Reject hypocrisy. And reject idolatry because idolatry comes with curses and you want blessings. Now, a lot of people are saying that basically everything is idolatry, and when everything is idolatry, nothing is idolatry. You've heard maybe recently that the love of family is idolatry. Not necessarily. The love of family is commanded in Scripture. We're called to take dominion over the planet by having children and having families. And oh, by the way, Jesus says he'll bless you for how long? A thousand generations. You know what that means? A man needs to marry a wife and have children who marry husbands and wives and have lots of children for a thousand generations. The family, I guess it could be idolatry, but not everything is idolatry. Jeremiah 7 says this. You trust in lying words that cannot profit. That's idolatry. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods whom you do not know and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I Even I have seen it. God sees our idolatry. God sees our trust in other things. God sees our over-desire for the things that are created rather than our complete and total desire to worship the creator. That's true freedom. Obedience is true freedom. Obedience because of what God has already done for us is true freedom. Lack of... or. or, uh, uh, Killing hypocrisy is true freedom. Those are idols that will lead to curses. If you want to be blessed, worship the Lord. If you want to be blessed, trust only in him. If you want to be blessed, submit to his leadership. Submit to his lordship in your life. Maybe today you're not saved, and you need to repent and believe that there's only one way to the Father. That's Jesus Christ, the Son. If so, all believers are invited to our communion table. We take the bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice, the bread representing the the broken body of Christ, the wine or the juice representing the blood of Jesus that was spilled to wash away our sins. You can't overcomplicate this. This is free. This is for you. This is a feast of forgiveness and remembrance of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, your stern words to the Pharisees could be stern words to us. Maybe we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Maybe we think that even our theological precision is at a place where we can rely on it instead of Christ. Pray, God, that all we do, including studying your word, being a part of a local body, a church, Obeying you, all of it would be for your glory, and because you have saved us, not to earn more of your love, but because you've already loved us. As we come to this table and celebrate the forgiveness that we have in Christ, and remember what we have in Christ, pray that each of us would come meekly, poor in spirit, mourning of our, over our sin, so that there may be great joy. Pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.